Hello and welcome to the Never Seen Trek podcast. I'm Sam, or at never underscore seen underscore trek on Twitter. Uh, I'm Patrick in Gears42 on Twitter. My name is Robert. I am Robert Morvey on Twitter. And we've made it to the films. We're Woo! <laughs> so, yeah, this week we're going to be talking about the first three of the uh, original series-based films. So, motion picture, Wrath of Khan, Search for Spock. Um, going through, talking about anything we noticed, anything we thought about them. At the end, we'll decide what our favorite was, what our least favorite was. Yeah, not, not to get too ahead of ourselves, but we're at what I would call the growing pains. <laughs> Interesting. I, yeah. yeah. Sam and I have talked a little bit before we did this podcast, and we have some takes that are <laughs> going to be considered hot. We Ooh. definitely do. Robert, Robbie especially definitely does. <laughs> Spicy. Um, but yeah, so we'll, we'll start, obviously, with the motion picture. And rather than going through the whole plot, as Patrick t- tends to do at the beginning of an episode, we're going to take it an act at a time. So if you want to sort of run us through what happens in the first act of the motion picture... Sure. Um, there is a mysterious space cloud that uh, rumbles some Klingons, <laughs> and it's headed straight to Earth. So Admiral Kirk freaks out and uh, gets himself uh, reestablished in command of the Enterprise, which is bright, shiny, and new. Uh, it's been refit to be literally the prettiest and my favorite ship in science fiction. Uh Everybody's there except Spock, who's off on Vulcan meditating. Uh, but he's on his way because he's been drawn by either either the cloud or his love for Kirk fans debate. <laughs> uh, but everybody else is there. And also a guy called Decker, who is supposed to be in command of the Enterprise. So there's some tension between him and Kirk. Uh, and then they, we also meet the ship's new navigator. Uh, who is sort of supposed to be a main character, only not really. And, like, pretty much the first act is just getting their asses out of space, Doc. Yeah, um, and I mean, it does take him a fair while, I think, to get their asses out of space, Doc. I think that was one thing I picked up on when live-tweeting it, was there are some shots that go on for very long... There are sequences of this film that are simply wide shots over and over different angles of different things that I personally, as like a film guy, think are are positively beautiful. However, I do understand they are self-indulgent. They definitely are. I mean, this was... So, I I had to do a little bit of research about this afterwards because it wasn't something I was aware of, but um, the film opens with a... The word has just gone from my brain. Overture. Overture. Overture, that's the one. Film opens with an overture. I've, I'd never encountered that in film before. And from what I can tell from my research, it was one of the last films to do so, which explains why. And certainly yeah. even at the time, it was a bit of a throwback. Definitely, yeah. But I think the way I described it when I was doing my live tweeting was this was a beautiful shot of space with some beautiful music in the background that went on for about three times as long as it needed to. Right, and, it, and I mean, especially looking back at the history of the director of this film Robert Wise Uh, this is the editor of Citizen Kane so this is some old classic Hollywood royalty and and this old style of filmmaking really shows throughout this this picture I think absolutely yeah 
But um, you know, he was at he was fourth on on the internal list circulated of directors. Uh, first, they wanted uh, Coppola. Second, Lucas. Third, Spielberg. Fourth, Robert Wise. And then they had a whole like long list after that. And you know, with with being that ambitious, it's not bad that they got their fourth name. No, I did I did read up on that. That was another thing that I brought up because, as I tend to do with the. Uh, podcast episodes about the episodes of Trek I have got a few bits of trivia for these I didn't get all of it because there were like there were pages and pages and pages of stuff because this is obviously a much see, bigger production see you do your homework because you're an awesome person this stuff just like sticks in my brain and I can't get out so now yeah. I get, now I get to subject all of you to it you're welcome see I think <laughs> yeah I'm coming at this from a, from a perspective that I made very intentionally. I watched all of the films that we're going to be discussing over the next two episodes without watching a single episode of Star Trek. I haven't watched an episode of the original series since I was 16 years old. I'm 23 currently, so it's been quite a while, almost a decade. Uh, and I did that intentionally as to get the experience of someone really going to the movie theater in the late 70s and seeing something like this and a reunion and a return to form to these characters that I love so much. Of course, I've seen all six of these films previously, uh, but I feel like that gave me a lot of great perspective on, on how well these films catch you up. And uh, the answer is they don't really do it that well, <laughs> especially this first one. This one really begs that you, you remember a lot about Star Trek. I'm 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 tripping over the fact that you're like you're talking about things that happened a long time ago, and then you're like, oh, but five years ago I was a teenager. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I I am stuck on that. I apologize. <laughs> it, was, it was quite funny. It's someone um, I tweeted recently that I uh, about a show that I grew up with. I can't remember which one it was now. Um, I think it might have been. I think it was Stargate Atlantis because I was tweeting about Robert Picardo. Oh dear. And I mentioned that I grew up with Stargate Atlantis, and someone replied to it with grew up like how old are you <laughs> no you know what that's that's fair because you know generation you know i'm only i'm only a couple years uh, older than my wife and to her like she quote unquote grew up with stargate atlantis in some ways whereas to me that was sort of the weird spin-off that i wasn't into so it's funny how entertainment kind of stratifies like that yeah definitely yeah right it's, it's funny sorry go on oh, no no you go ahead oh, i was gonna say um it's funny what um, Robert mentioned a minute ago about how, how this film doesn't catch you up at all um, with the cast, because I, I got a few quotes and um, sort of insights from the cast um, based on what they've said in interviews over the years, and they broadly agreed and broadly sort of felt that this wasn't very good. Um, Shatner's um, opinion upon seeing the film was, we've just killed Star Trek. His, his direct quote was, that's it, we, give, we gave it our best shot, it wasn't good, it'll never happen again. <laughs> <laughs> Which didn't work out too well for him. Whereas Nimoy described the film as leaving the franchise stranded like a beached whale. And, um, and Walter Koenig said, this might be Star Trek, but it isn't the old Star Trek. Mm. Wait, so, I, I agree with, with Koenig there. Uh, despite, I'm a little more positive on this movie than I feel like most people are. Um, yes! Because I just I love I love its self indulgence to a point. Later in the film, it does get grating, but especially in this first act, uh, kind of jumping right into the middle, when you first see the Enterprise, and and they very very purposefully do not show you the Enterprise until this 
self-indulgent uh, series of, of wide shots. The music swells. It is beautiful. And you just look at the ship for five minutes and, and you get this sense like, like you're Kirk in that moment. And you're finally seeing your ship again. And it's like you're home. Uh, and that is something that I, I really love is, is the emotion that is evoked by all of these shots uh, in, these, in these very long dialogueless uh, periods of time. Absolutely. Um, what two things that I, I feel like deserve to get brought up about this movie, which which deserves a lot of the criticism. Like I like a lot of movies that deserve a lot of their criticism, and I've literally put on this movie to fall asleep to before. So I get it. But if you're gonna talk about the movie, I think the two things you have to to understand is one, you know, and we, we've touched on this, um, the stylistic choices of, uh, of Robert Wise, both in 1979 and in 2001 for his director's cut, and him giving it this incredible, like, classic feel, you know, like, not just to 2001, but, but you know, to but even way back further than that. And the other thing I think you have to realize is how badly they got boned on the effects, as in, the, they, they hired a production house uh, that completely failed to deliver after months and millions of dollars. And lots of it's been right about it, written about it, I, a lot I don't understand, but that's the bottom line. Uh, so they had to rush the effects. And the whole, I think, sort of a, a reason... To, to do the movie this way was to follow up Star Wars, was to bring Star Trek into this big screen, big budget, big visual zone, right? They, they couldn't... There, there's no movie without, without the effects. And so, and so between having to, like, stretch every frame of what did get delivered and, you know, Wise's kind of style... That's how we get these super long shots that if you're if you're in the mood for it and you're paying attention, they're beautiful works of art. But if you're sitting down expecting Star Wars, you're just like, what in the hell's happening? No, and I think like this is something that came up in my research as well. That obviously this was to an extent a response to Star Wars. Um hugely. Hugely hugely. Yeah. Because that was the big thing at the time. But at the same time, it very much wanted to be something very different. I found I come across when doing my research that apparently, uh, when sort of going over ideas for this, the one sticking point that Rodenbury ins absolutely insisted on was that there were to be no space battles in the film because he wanted his film to be more sophisticated and complex than Star Wars was. Oh yeah. yeah, and you know that's another good point. That should have been my number three. That aside from the first season of TOS and the first season of TNG. This is Roddenberry's creative power at its zenith. So the the as far you know, and he didn't have anything to do with shooting the film, but as far as the the themes and the character beats, that's very very Gene Roddenberry. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and it, God, does it feel like that? Not to get too ahead of ourselves before the third act, the that Roddenberry human love uh, is is very in this. Um, speaking of which, I think we'll we'll move on to the second act. Um, Patrick, if you want to sort of take oh, yeah. us through that again. Um, 
so they they barely managed to get the Enterprise out of space dock somehow. Um, and they uh, catch up with Spock, who is uh, even more robotic and emotionless than usual, um, which Leonard Nimoy is really putting a lot of thought into the performance. Like, Spock is the character best served by this movie. Um, they catch up to V'ger. Uh, apparently their shields are better than Klingon shields because they survived the first volley. Um, and they broadcast something that makes the cloud take an interest in them. Um, and, uh, basically, you know, it, t it takes them inside. They discover there's a huge, huge ship that's emanating that cloud. Uh, and it, uh, investigates the Enterprise kind of, uh, aggressively, uh, aggressively enough to disintegrate the Navigator. Uh, but then it recreates her as this kind of uh, digital probe. And so the second act is really about the Enterprise crew interacting with this entity, which they learn is called V'ger. Um, and they're just a bug next to this thing. And so they've got to figure out how are we going to keep it from uh, destructively sampling Earth. Yeah, and I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, like, as I was watching the film, this was the point at which I started to lose my understanding of what was going on. I, this film tries very hard to be very intellectual, I feel. Yeah. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But after coming off three seasons of the original series and... Oh, well, two seasons, but basically a season and a half of the animated series, it's very jarring to suddenly go, and now we're going to be having lots of deep thoughts... And nothing's going to happen for half an hour. Well, so much of that is because of the, the cultural shift that happened. And the, the animated series was like, was, was catching a piece of that, right? Like what, you know, why in God's name is there an animated series? That's just a continuation of a live action series. Well, it's because Star Trek took off in syndication and the, the, the Trekker culture formed and, you know, these are sophisticated people, young people, liberal people. The novels uh, were, were starting to roll out. Um, you know, and the animated series is very much like in the same style as the original, but, you know, plus and minus because of the constraints of the form and the studio. And, you know, like people want more. People want more. Um, and then this the movie slash TV series slash movie slash TV series slash movie uh, goes through its all its stages of development in this culture of sky high expectations, and you really, you know, Gene Roddenberry literally went around doing lectures at colleges. Star Trek became this this intellectual uh, signifier, and that really informs, I think, the change in tone that you're describing. And, and to me, like, I wouldn't have even thought to comment on it because it's, you know, 1979, this is before my time, this is just part of the background. But it's so interesting what you're doing because you experienced that that shift in gears uh, in, in something like real time. Yeah, and, and I think something that really affects this film in, in both positive and negative ways uh, is, is that subverting of expectations of those who have watched the original series uh, and who have not been part of that, that Trekkie culture uh, over the 70s as that kind of rose to its zenith. And 
it loses this element of the original series that I felt was very captivating, which was it's it's fun. It's so fun, blindly fun sometimes, dangerously fun. Uh, and this movie comes right out of the gate. And there are there are moments in this movie that I would consider like, oh, this is really like cool and fun to watch. However, the range of all the characters' emotions as well as a lot of what's happening is very, very stuffy. Uh, and, and it works for and against it. Yeah, and I think that's something I picked up on because I spoke about this in the live tweets a bit as well because I think that air of this isn't as fun anymore this is serious and this is stuffy like you said sort of carries over to the production values in a way because it was something that i picked up a lot on the live tweet it's such a darkly lit movie a lot of the time if you think back to the original series there's so much bright colors and bright lights and everything is full of hope and happiness and well obviously not always but (laughs) definitely not always but it's always very bright and very colorful and then this i mean obviously coming a, a fair few years later when and the 70s were a very dark era for film like we remember we remember star wars because star wars shifted the tone but the 70s were grim in in hollywood yeah as i think i think one of the things i said in that live tweet is why is everything beige (laughs) because it was (laughs) well well the uniforms yeah the uniforms are famously awful there's no defending the uniforms but it is interesting to see how the uniforms go from the series to the motion picture and then to wrath of khan where like the the color is back but then there's a new formality laid over it yeah um but yeah it's i don't know I, I, that was something that i think almost it didn't pull me out of the film but it i much prefer the sort of the more colorful vibrant imagery that we saw in the original series for sure i find that in several points of this film uses of color are a lot more intentional in terms of how they light up a scene like the the scene where they're going into the the V'ger wormhole or Spock's mind meld with V'ger are incredibly colorful scenes and and I feel that they're even more impactfully colorful in comparison to the rest of the film which yeah does incorporate a lot of beige and a lot of white well, and you can also kind of contrast this to the treatment of the filming model, which, again, it, you know, that model they obviously continued to use for many years, but it never looked any better than it did in this movie. Um, it's it's designed to be pearlescent. It's a pearlescent starship. And then the unique concept they had was that it's a starship that lights itself. Because, you know, they brought in new special effects technicians, new visual effects technicians, and one of the questions they're asking themselves is, why can you see the ship in space? It's dark. And they didn't just want to go the Star Wars route of, because you can, screw you. Um, And they, you know, they talked to Gene and got a sense of the philosophy of Star Trek, and they're like, this ship literally bathes itself in light so that you see it coming across space. And that's just you know, such a remarkable concept to me. Um, and it's really the, the interiors of this movie are such a disappointment compared to the exteriors, man. Oh no, 100%. I think I was particularly the design of the, of the bridge of the enterprise was, I mean, I don't know if this is a popular opinion or not, but to me just 
so much less interesting than it was in the original series. Mm, it felt okay. like it had charm before. Hot, hot take, hot take. Um, or maybe not a hot take, but actually just a straight up question. What did you think of the bridge in the next two movies? Uh, I, okay, so the bridge in uh, Search for Spock, I, I really enjoyed. I thought it was much better. Okay. Um, it's the same bridge. See, yeah, that's, it's just that's... it's just the you know different lighting, different panels. Did they rearrange things? Yeah, and it and it it's so something they were doing on set in the motion picture just made everything look worse than it was. Well, I think part of it as well is that it tries to because obviously in the original series you have one angle from which you see the bridge for ninety percent of that of the bridge's time on the screen, and I think Stock the motion. Footage. <laughs> I think the motion picture tries to show you too much of it I think and it makes it feel quite because they didn't have a huge set this is something I came across a lot in the research was them saying they had to make the most of the set with uh, sort of clever camera angles and stuff it was a very small set and I think that comes across more in the motion picture because they try to show more angles of it mm. whereas in I, I don't remember as many scenes of it in Wrath of Kani. I don't think it stuck, stood out as much but particularly in Search for Spock it's a, a lot more sort of pulled out shots and normally from the same sort of angle which i think i think helps it a lot yeah i think yeah, maybe I they had to it. learn to shoot in it so that set i think i believe it stood and i could be wrong i believe it stood until 2004 because they used it on every live action star trek production but they would use it as like a secondary control room or like the guest ships bridge they had to upgrade the actual bridge So I want to bring it back before we move on to my thoughts about the death of Ilea. And I know she doesn't technically die. She's still in the film. The actress is still in the film. However, the character that was introduced it ceases to be from this point forward completely and entirely. And she was set up to be this really interesting character. We got to know just enough about her to care. Uh, and then they chose deliberately to to take the female character and chuck her aside uh as as a as a means to advance our our male characters particularly decker and kirk um which if you don't know in the audience that is that is a trope called fridging uh and you know this is way before that was established as like the most evil thing you could do uh but it just it feels a little icky um and and i do feel like the rest of the film is is marred by her lack of presence despite V'ger being there in her form yeah I think something I, I sort of felt when watching it was just how underdeveloped she was like if that had been a character that we'd known in the original series even if it had been a background character um, just having some level of sort of background and character building rather than just like it feels like she's introduced and then just immediately thrown away and it's like, well, I don't know who this character is enough to care and, and I noticed there's there's a trend in this film with having small moments have really overwhelmingly uh, decadent shot language, and then more character moments having a lot less pressing. To to dive quickly back into Act One, when Spock is reintroduced to the crew, uh, the shot language of him walking into the the Enterprise is, is quite pedestrian. He just kind of walks in. Uh, and it's not treated with that much grandeur. And same with the death of Ilea. And I thought, I think those are really interesting choices. It's really clear what uh, Robert Wise had in mind for this film. And it wasn't so much the character. Uh, 
which I think goes against certain elements of what made Star Trek great, despite his ideas he brought to the table being really, really captivating and really interesting. Yeah, I I would agree that I don't think Wise, um, you know, he wasn't a fan, but which is not a bad thing, but it means that he was not necessarily speaking the same language as the people, as his audience. Um, but then Ilya's uh, fate, I agree, is very unfortunate and in fact is inexcusable. Um, it's also a really strange artifact of the production process uh as we're about to get to the third act it's worth noting that when they started shooting there was no third act uh they the movie was reworked from a pilot script uh in which Ilya and Decker were to be regular characters on the subsequent show uh and so Ilya is restored at the end and so everything that we learn about her remains sort of sort of vital uh, as we as we hypothetically move forward into this hypothetical series. Um, and then when they moved it to a big-budget movie, you know, they kept the sort of basic plot beat, but then they're like, okay, we're going to make this more momentous. You know, like, we're, we're not going to... We, we're not going to plan for a sequel. You know, we don't know if uh, Decker and Ilya... You know, we don't, we don't really care about them being around at the end. So it's a strange confluence uh, that results in a, like you said, a very jarringly undeveloped character. Which I think, I think talking about their fates leads us directly into Act 3, if you want to take that away. Sure, yeah. So uh, what eventually got sort of patched together out of Act 3, uh, I guess technically this is an Act 2, but um, Spock uh, goes out without authorization because... He loves doing illegal shit. Just look at the menagerie. Uh, and he mind melds with V'ger because, you know, that guy can mind meld with anything, even a, a inconceivably huge spaceship. Uh, he doesn't understand everything that he sees, although if you're really eagle-eyed, you'll catch a, uh, a 20th century space probe flashed on his helmet. Uh what he realizes, though, is that the reason why V'ger is doing what it's doing uh, is because, essentially, it's in cosmic uh, existential agony uh, because Spock has been trying to dismiss his emotions, and V'ger never had any choice. V'ger was made without emotions, and it hasn't helped it. And so Spock comes to the epiphany that, you know, he needs to synthesize his logic and his emotions into his true self, which, you know, I want to give this movie credit for because, you know, we sort of think of that as, oh, yeah, of course, that's Spock's whole deal. That's his whole plot line. But, like, it's really not resolved until now. You know, he's always trying to be more Vulcan until now. And after this, he's Spock. You know, his, his character really sort of settles uh, into what most people, I think, remember. Uh, but anyway, uh, V'ger starts firing, you know, death blobs at Earth, uh, which either uh, doesn't make it on the screen at all in the original special effects, or if you're watching the 2001 DVD, they actually animated this sequence, which, uh, you know, adds something. Uh, and Kirk, as Kirk does, uh, bluffs... V'ger with this new information it says you know I 
All right, I guess we I guess we talked past the part. V's just looking for its creator, and the reason it came to Earth is because it knows its creator is from Earth, but it doesn't know anything else. And it doesn't recognize the human beings on Earth or the Enterprise as as life forms. Uh, so the ILEA probe calls them carbon units. Uh, and V'ger decides that it's going to obliterate all the carbon units from Earth to dispel their interference, and then it will be able to talk to its creator. And uh, everybody on the Enterprise uh, realizes that, obviously, if anybody on Earth did create V'ger, they have to be human. So they see the flaw, um, and they're trying to con they're, to open up this dialogue with, with Ilea through V'ger. Uh, and they start to get somewhere, but V'ger decides it's going to bombard Earth anyway. So Kirk bluffs it. Again, he loves bluffing computers. He says, I know the secret to your, to your creator, but you've got to, you know, you've got to let me, you've got to let me, the carbon units into your, into your core. And so, you know, with kind of everyone holding guns to each other's heads, uh, Decker, Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and the Ilea probe, uh, walk out of the ship into the core of V'ger. And they discover it's built around an old Earth space probe, the uh, fictional Voyager 6. Uh, and everything has been built around it by advanced uh, technological aliens. And so it's been using its power to exercise its mission of learning all that is learnable. And as I noted before, it's uh, using some destructive sampling methods. Uh, so... What sort of ends up happening is, uh, you know, they're going to broadcast, since they know it's Voyager 6, they get the code from the Enterprise, like, we, you know, your, your like, acknowledgement code, your, your mission accomplished code. But then V'ger feels an emotion, uh, and it burns out its radio leads, because it doesn't want to just hear a message from its creator, it wants to touch its creator. Uh, and so Decker volunteers because he wants to be with what's left of Ilea uh, and, and plugs in the sequence. And then somehow uh, V'ger, Decker, and Ilea all transcend into the astral plane. And the movie's over. Now, I, like, obviously I had no idea what to expect going into this film. <laughs> and like I said, the first, the first act was fine. The second act I felt dragged a bit. I really enjoyed the third act of this. I agree. I agree. I thought the twist was really nice. It wasn't like it wasn't the most out there, random, unexpected thing. Like you could probably work it out given enough time. But it was. I I, I just really enjoyed it as a twist. To be yeah, honest, it's it's all it's Star Trek. Exactly. It's, yeah. It's it's so Star Trek. I mean, it is. We, one thing that we haven't touched on is that it it is so Star Trek partly because. It is an old episode of Star Trek. It is just the changeling with bigger ramifications. Um, but, yeah, it is It is such a quintessential sort of... This, this is what Star Trek is. Definitely for the third act, at the very least. Um, it, it, sorry, go on. It becomes quite dense in this third act. Uh, this, is, this is certainly the act where if you, you know, you're just sitting there... And you miss one line of dialogue, you aren't giving this movie your absolute undivided attention. If you space out for just a second, you will lose track of everything that's happening. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I confess, you know, actually reciting the plot from memory was kind of a challenge. And it's, it you know, and you can't always save a movie with a Cracker Jack third act if you lost the audience in the second act. That was kind of the problem with the last Star Wars movie, if I can editorialize. <laughs> right. And... I, I think the emotional stakes really really come to their core here. Like you mentioned, all of the stuff with, Stock, with Spock comes together, and it really sets up his arc for the progressive next few films, which are quintessentially all about Spock's journey uh, post his discovery in this film. And what it really feels like is it feels like this movie is a Kirk movie, but then you really look at it, and Kirk really doesn't learn all too much. Uh, he's yes. kind of a dick from the beginning, and then he's kind of a dick at the end. His, uh, story, his story wraps up in Act 1, and then he has one snit with Decker, and then that's it. Right. It, it's very very strange in that way. I mean, God, and he is he is a real prick to Decker. Mm. For, for really no reason other, other than, you know, Bones brings it up in his one out of, like, two or three scenes in this movie uh, that Bones appears. Uh, and, yeah, but the movie posits Kirk like like he's the solution to all these problems. But, yeah, truly it is set up for Spock. And, and it's wild for me to now know that uh, I, I'm actually just learning that they didn't intend for there to be sequels because uh, it really felt like they were setting things up for Spock's journey in the next few films in this one. Well, I mean, they didn't not plan on sequels, but it wasn't like, okay, we're setting up a regular series. It's like, you know, whatever happens next is going to be, you know, if we make money, you know, maybe we'll do another film event. Um, and if we don't make money, then Star Trek's dead. And the it turned out, as we'll see, to be a little bit in the middle. But uh, there was no compunction about just killing off or ascending Ilea and Decker to, to raise the stakes because they were the new folks. Something interesting I came across uh, during my research for this actually as well, because you touched on sort of the merger of Vija, of Decker, of Ilea. And that just sort of happens and then it's gone. You get like a reference at the end where Kirk says that they're not dead, they're missing. And that's about it. But something that I, f I found out whilst researching this is that um, had sort of had William Shatner got his way, as he was sort of prone to try and do, after having sort of seen some of the Next Generation and uh, sort of seen more of the universe building, he wanted it to be sort of retconned and rewritten in a way that they were the sort of birthing of the Borg. Which yeah, is it's um, bizarre. That's Gene. Actually, it was it was not a fully developed idea. It was more just something he he talked about in interviews. Um, but when he he after again um, Next Generation got produced and the board kind of became a thing, you know, he was saying, you know, in retrospect, the machine world in in motion picture that could have been the Borg home world. You know, it turns out you can shoot several mile wide holes into that concept, but I think thematically they they represent that same idea of of the machine and of of pure logic as they would call it in Star Trek um potentially crowding out uh what's sort of vibrant uh, about life and that being a threat uh 
to sort of the spirit of humanity. And not for nothing, uh, Jerry Goldsmith, who was the composer for this movie and did an amazing job, um, but years later he scored Star Trek First Contact, which features the Borg, and he reworked the V'ger motif to represent the Borg. Oh, okay. That's quite interesting, actually. That's yeah, really so, interesting. Yeah, so, there, so there's a thematic link. There's not a canon link, because for one thing, V'ger is about a million times more powerful than a Borg ship. Uh, but but that, 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 that connection is there, and it's, it's, it's a gene connection. That's interesting. Yeah, and, and in a lot of ways, there are a lot of elements of this film... That, that set up the feel of TNG. And, and I'm not seeing too much TNG myself, uh, actually. I really only watched the original series when I was younger. So uh, after these podcasts, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my own Never Seen Trek uh, personally in my home. Uh, but especially going into this movie, starting with a proto version of the Next Generation theme, uh, not to jump all the way back to the beginning, and then, yeah, ending with this... this possible weird link uh it's this this weird series of coincidences that that tied this film with the next generation and i and i find that fascinating it is very you are aggressively right um and i'll raise you one more uh that decker and ilea are Riker and troy yeah yeah absolutely I mean, I've not seen TNG yet either, but like that's something that came up a lot in my research was the comparison between those two sort of sets of characters. Um, so yeah, that's yeah. The, the motion picture. The motion picture. <laughs> motion picture. Um, I have a few bits of trivia. I think we touched on quite a lot of it already. Um, the Of the props that were brought over from the original series, only one prop was actually brought over from the original series uh, entirely intact, which was uh, Ahura's comm pieces. Um... And the entire reason for that was that they, they had to be dug out of a, like a back closet in a hurry because they realised they'd forgot to commission new ones. <laughs> which is, um, which is, I think, indicative of the overall sort of production value of the film overall, to be honest. So basically, um, Star Trek is, is just like me, always losing its earbuds. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, speaking of her, um, Nichelle Nichols, uh, in her biography, wrote that her least favorite thing about this film and i think most people's to be honest is the uniforms mm -hmm. uh because and this is a quote the drab unisex look just wasn't a hurrah which fair enough well a very interesting thing with nichelle that you might pick up on in the subsequent movies uh the red uniforms which debut in the next movie and are a complete hit and they continue using forever and ever and ever uh they are by default unisex um nichelle nichols didn't want that so she kind of used her clout and they made her a skirt version and if you watch those movies she's the only character who wears the skirt version of that uniform all right okay um but yeah uh what else do i have only a couple more uh this was the first film to have a mcdonald's happy meal tie-in Oh, wow. Which is quite funny. Uh, they weren't branded as that. They were branded as Star Trek meals at the time. Wow. Whoa. Which... Whoa. <laughs> well, you um, blew my mind. <laughs> like, hasn't that been around forever? Didn't didn't the cavemen have Happy Meal tie-ins? 
Hey, I'm just I'm just reading off IMDb at this point. <laughs> Pretty sure this podcast um, is going to get a Happy Meal tie-in at some point. <laughs> oh God, hopefully. Um, well, no, it'll just be various different versions of the Nomad prop, but in different <laughs> forms. Um, uh, edible Nomad. Edible Nomad, yeah. Chicken nuggets in the shape of Nomad. Um, Rodenbury apparently uh, asked uh, Majel Barrett during the production of this film if she would. Don a fursuit and a tail and reprise the role of Mares. Which feels more like it I, feels I, more like Rodenbury just trying to get his wife into a fursuit, to be honest. I I I uh you know, anybody can write just anything on IMDB. Yeah, that's... I mean, you're not wrong. It it could be <laughs> like I do preface this by saying all of this comes from IMDB. Um, it could not be true. If it is true, I feel like again, like I say, it's more of a case of Rodenbury just trying to get his wife in a fursuit. But um, <laughs> it's I mean, only yeah. logical. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, two more I've got left. Uh, there was a scene that was deleted that, so far as I'm aware, was never included in the like delete actual deleted scenes on any DVDs or anything. But uh, Duhan discussed it at a lecture he gave at Virginia Tech, where the sort of Vija Ilya probe thing uh whilst examining the engineering deck says to scotty that it is not logical that carbon units run the enterprise to which scotty's response was lassie if i were being logical right now i'd be showing you the inside of a scrap metal compactor (laughs) which is a bit extreme um and the only other one i had the novelization of this film so so in the scene where ilea first enters the bridge everyone and everyone stands up uh it's noticeable if you're looking that Sulu's when he stands well uh, George K when he stands up sort of moves very strangely uh, the novelization's explanation for that was uh, that Ilya was so overwhelmingly attractive that he had an erection yeah um, so the novelization was officially written by Gene Roddenberry it was ghost written by Alan Dean Foster um, but it's still you know has a lot of his stamp like that's the only book of any kind that has gene roddenberry uh, listed as the author um and and they cut most of it out but the the whole oath of celibacy thing you know ilea was supposed to have magic horny powers uh <laughs> and you and as i said you know troy is a descendant of uh you know of ilea uh thematically speaking you know delton became betazoid uh and there was very serious investigation done on making it appear as if uh, Marina Sirtis had four breasts. Oh, God. Like, that was going to be the thing about the Betazoids. So, Deltons have magic horny powers. Betazoids have four breasts. You're welcome. Uh, I I think the only way to even respond to that is just that it's that's Gene Roddenberry. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say that's genius. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> yeah, genius. Didn't you see Total Recall? More breasts is better. Um, you know, I will but, say four breasts is a lot more biologically sound than three in a row like that. That makes sense, I guess, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so that was the motion picture. We'll move on to the next one, and arguably a better one. Uh, the Wrath of Khan. Arguably? So, arguably. <laughs> yeah, I had, a, I had to word that carefully. Robbie, yeah. don't worry. No, um, that's um, I, more than fair. I think uh, most people wouldn't even argue it, but I think it's interesting to at least think about. Um, Gene Roddenberry hated this movie. 
like five and two were his least favorites and like most people would would identify with five but most people have two as ranked very highly uh so first act uh there's uh, kind of this neat fake-out opening that I imagine would have played even better with no context at all, where we're on the bridge of the Enterprise and everyone's in their proper place uh, except for Chekhov and Kirk, and commanding the Enterprise is a young Vulcan woman. Uh, she takes the Enterprise on a rescue mission and they fight Klingons and seemingly everyone is killed, uh, and it's revealed to be a simulation that is run by Kirk, uh, who is now training cadets. There's been a time skip since the previous movie. Uh, and we learn that this is the Kobayashi Maru, the no-win scenario, which became such a strong idiom in Star Trek itself that it's now just like a straight-up regular people idiom, which is fascinating to me. Uh, but anyway, it's one of the many tests that Starfleet cadets are... Uh, you know, are subjected to, and the Enterprise is now considered an older ship again, and it is being used for cadet trainee cruises. And the original crew, especially Kirk, is uh, somewhat preoccupied by this uh, idea of having grown old and, uh, you know, and uh, aging uh, into new roles in their lives. Meanwhile, uh, Chekhov is actually a first officer of USS Reliance, uh, he and uh, his captain, Terrell, uh, played by the uh, really amazing Paul Winfield, uh, they're scouting planets for something called the Genesis Project, uh, which we're going to learn what it is. Uh, but they beam down on a planet that they thought was lifeless, but they actually got a weird uh, life form blip, and it turns out to somehow be the 80 super people that the Enterprise uh, left on this planet way back in Space Seed, season one of the original series. Uh, and Khan's in charge, and the colonization uh, didn't go well, but and nobody ever checked on them to rescue them, Apparently, you know, probably because they don't give a crap, because he's basically the Space Hitler. Uh, but uh, Khan uses very convenient mind-control slugs on uh, Chekhov and Terrell, and uh, our central conflict is set up because now he's got a ship and he's got the inside track on this uh, on this Genesis project. So I think and this is this is going to sound funny based on what we talk about later on. I think this movie starts off really well. Uh, I think it takes a lot of the problems that the motion picture had and flips them on their head. Uh, it's there's a lot more character stuff in this first act. There's a lot of great concepts introduced that are very outsider friendly. This new concept of the Kobayashi Maru is really interesting, uh, and it's clear why it became so iconic. Uh, and I love what that sets up for it later in the film. Uh, there's actual character moments between our our, our main characters. Uh, the the scene between Bones and Kirk at Kirk's apartment is is really nice. Um, that is my favorite. Kirk McCoy scene rivaled only by their scene in Balance of Terror. Um, and I think a lesser talent than uh, Nick Meyer, who is the film's director and uncredited writer, would never have allowed that sequence to to continue as long as it does. Um, and it's it's just breathtakingly good. I totally agree. 
And then especially the scene where where uh, uh, Chekhov and, and his new captain encounter Khan. Although, coming at it from the perspective that I did of someone who hasn't seen the original series in many years, uh, I barely remember the events of Space Seed. Uh, it's been so long, and they don't do a good job uh, trying to make you remember who this is. And, and in a way, they kind of set it up like he's a new villain. Uh, but also, they don't. It, it's a really strange yeah. dichotomy. No, I, I see what you're saying. Like, the they... They want to benefit from the the history um, and the weight of his of his conflict with Kirk, but it's 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 kind of blown up a little bit because if you really go back and watch what happened, like Kirk didn't really do anything to him, so they have this sort of long winded exposition scene because um, that's really the purpose of the scene with the space slugs, and at the end of it, it's just like, hey, you know, everybody looks different and the ship looks different and everything's different, but, you know, screw it. This is Khan and his groupies. Move on. We're dealing with it. Watch the movie. Yeah. And it is it is an effective first villain scene. Uh, forgetting what I had known about Khan, I forgot how strong he was. Uh, and when he, when he just picks the two of them up and he's so powerful you really feel that power and, and the way that it's shot there uh, emphasizes how big he is, but also how smart he is with these slugs and the slugs of the, a really cool design. A lot of this movie has really cool production design elements from when it goes to costumes, to props, to little special effects, animatronics like these slugs. Uh, really, really strong stuff there. And it really set me up to enjoy the rest of the film. And the scene works because of all the stuff that you mentioned, but 99% the scene works because of Ricardo Montalban. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. He is captivating. Well, it's, it's interesting, though, because I, I look this up. Again, this is coming from the research I did. and Because Ricardo Montalban, I can't remember the name of the show, but he was on... Fantasy Island. Fantasy Island, there we go. He was on that show at the time. And he has said in, in, in interviews since, he was so embedded in his role in that show that he couldn't get back into the sort of mannerisms and character of Khan. He had to re-watch Space Seed, I think he said something like 20 to 30 times over before he could get back into that role. I certainly it's, think it's, that shows later on in the film. But Towards the end of the film, I think, definitely, yeah. yeah. But this first scene, he is... He's, he's in it. He's on it, absolutely. But um, we you touched on the sort of this, the space slug things there, and I think this was one of my complaints with this film and it comes up more later but in this scene as well is it's a relatively family friendly movie for the most part I mean obviously there's like action and there's death and that but like it's not particularly gory apart from these two scenes the one later and the one in this act with the slugs and the really weird close-ups as they like burrow into the people and that really weirded me out watching it because it was like this is just a nice Star Trek thing. Okay, now we're doing body horror. Yeah, it's a big. It's it's definitely an anomaly. Um, I think if we get anything out of it, we get more con villain cred, which is important to establish because you know, hot take. Uh, I actually don't think Khan is a particularly threatening star trek villain when you think i mean like compare him to v'ger for god's sake and v'ger wasn't even a villain you know but it's got to be 
what he does that creates his threat because you could you know you could just shoot him with a phaser and have done with it um and i think again if we got anything out of that scene which again i don't love that scene and i think it's an anomaly in the in the corpus of trek movies um but it does prime you for one of the major buy-ins that the movie requires which is that khan is uniquely terrible yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can definitely agree with that. Um I guess we could move on to Act Two. I was gonna say there's there's not a huge amount oh, of sure. about Yeah, it. yeah. Um so the the trainee crew starts and we, we actually spend a fair amount of time with, with Savik, uh the the Vulcan trainee who is uh Spock's protege and is forming this this kind of like uh, intense uh, admiration for Kirk as well. This doesn't really go anywhere, and it's not to go anywhere. It's it's establishing character and setting, and it's all it's all done very nicely. Um, we also meet uh, Mr. Scott's nephew. Only we don't because the lines that explain who he is uh, are are not in the theatrical cut. Uh, but uh, off-screen, Khan does a bunch of villainy that we find out about later. He uh, maroons the crew of the USS Reliant, takes it over with his uh, super people. Uh, he flies to Space Station Regular One, which is inhabited by the Doctor's Marcus, two uh, mysterious blondes with a connection to Kirk. Uh, and he almost gets the Genesis device, which turns out to be uh, its... It instantly terraforms a planet, but uh, any idiot looking at that can tell that that's, uh, that's a super weapon because it'll take out anything on the planet that was already there. Uh, so Marcus manages to get off kind of a garbled distress call to Kirk, uh, and she manages to abscond with the device itself. And so Kirk follows the distress call, and unknown to him is on a collision course with Khan, who has decided that Kirk must have Genesis or know how to get it. And also, he wants to kill Kirk anyway, because his wife did not survive uh, the colonization project. Uh, we saw the wife in Space Seed, and he thinks that's Kirk's fault for reasons of uh, he cray. Uh, it's interesting. Yeah, Sorry, well, I was going to say, it's interesting, though, that because you mentioned the wife and how sort of instrumental her death is to Khan's sort of revenge mission. She was f originally intended to be in the film. Like, Lieutenant McGovers was intended to return. The only reason they couldn't is because the actress Madeline Rue uh, has multiple sclerosis and was confined to a wheelchair at the time. Uh, so that's a shame. And, you know, and I, I think they could have they worked that in. Um, not to spoil anything, but there's a, a the last season of Star Trek Discovery worked out a way to reuse a guest star who had since become ill and confined to a wheelchair. And basically what I'm saying is the 21st century is kind of cool like that, <laughs> at least, <laughs> at least in Star Trek productions. But no, that's, that's a shame. Um, I am glad they didn't recast her cause that they were doing that kind of casually with, with folks in the eighties, you know, think about Marty McFly's girlfriend. And they also recast all of the, uh, the super people which is why they look 20 to 30 years younger than Khan. Uh, so what they did on balance was probably for the best. Yeah. yeah. And, and I noticed, and, I noticed and this is this is the part of the movie where I think it 
really falls off. And that's where my hot take comes in, is that I don't like the Wrath of Khan very much at all. And where it really falls off for me is, like you were saying, there was a lot of stuff where you were talking about this happened off screen or this was cut from the movie and we've just learned another thing that was cut from the movie this time for better reasons but there's a lot done in these in these moments that would be a lot more interesting than kind of just wandering about it feels like there's not a lot happening it feels quite boring in a way that that that's a little opposite from the motion picture because the motion picture was boring when it was being self-indulgent and this movie is in comparison to the motion picture, and I think in general even, shot quite pedestrian. So scenes where not a lot is happening, uh, this scene really falls flat for me. Uh, and scenes where things are happening, thank goodness, are a lot better. Uh, but in Act 2, it just it, it grinds to a halt, and, and it becomes really difficult to keep my attention. Interesting. Um, I haven't heard... I, I... I've got my own beefs with this movie. I don't think it's the grand high poobah of Star Trek. I think it's very significant. Um, but I've never had a problem with the pacing. So that's that's a really interesting uh, issue to bring up. I mean, you know, so they have a bunch of motion picture stock footage and then they leave. And there's, like I said, there's this sort of character building wafflery with uh, Kirk and Spock and McCoy. They get the distress call and they establish what Genesis is, which is a big moment. And I think maybe it... It, it needs to be appreciated in the context of its own time. Uh, this was actually the first project that Pixar Studios uh, ever did on the computer was creating the Genesis effect. And they're so impressed with it that they used the exact same scene in the next two movies. You uh, pinch my, pinch my, um, my trivia there. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I, I actually, I like spiking your trivia deal with it. <laughs> but, but then, you know, but you know, I, I feel like that it's, it, it moves on pretty well until we get to the to the confrontation of the Enterprise and the Reliant, and I love that scene. Uh, you know, essentially the Enterprise and the Reliant, uh, Kirk's arrogance uh, makes it so he doesn't listen to Savick and raise the shields in time, uh, and Khan just strafes them, nearly cripples the Enterprise. Uh, Kirk gets an edge, uh, both because... Khan wants the Genesis device and doesn't know they don't have it, uh, and by exploiting elements of starship operations that Khan doesn't know about, which is very clever writing and which we'll get called back to again even later in the film. Uh, so essentially both of the ships wind up half crippled and sort of prowling around the, uh, the star system for each other, uh, which is a very, uh, a very interesting sort of status quo to, uh, to have for the next few scenes. Uh, and then we get kind of a field trip to the space station where we discover all the atrocities that, uh, Khan has wrought, uh, that we meet up with Terrell and Chekhov who say that they're no longer mind controlled, but actually are big surprise. Uh, they find the Genesis device, um, and the Genesis scientists, uh, and it's revealed that, uh, Dr. Marcus one was Kirk's former lover and Dr. Marcus two was Kirk's son. Not that it's that hard to figure out. Uh, but Khan pulls the Terrell and Chekhov card. Uh, Terrell is killed and uh, Chekhov is knocked out and somehow freed of mind control after this. Uh, but Khan gets the Genesis device. 
And what, this sets up our Act 3 conflict because our heroes have to get back to the Enterprise and run down the Reliant. And then we get a big sort of submarine-style uh, battle royale to, uh, to close us out. Um, yeah, and I think um, so. That, that you touched on there, obviously Chekhov is no longer under mind control after he's knocked out. That scene always confused me a bit because I don't like if if Khan has the ability to make Terrell like kill himself with this mind control. Why does he let Chekhov live? Oh, okay, so that's a different interpretation than I've had of it. Um, and I don't know I don't know who's right, but um, the way I read that scene uh, is they're both holding phasers on the company, um, and uh, Khan's got Genesis, and he's, like, relishing this moment of uh, having Kirk at his mercy, and he tells Terrell to kill everyone with the phaser. And Terrell, because he actually is a stalwart, forthright Starfleet captain, uh, resists... And uh, Khan kind of was, was like, kill him now, now, because he knows that the clock is running out on these SETI eels and they're just going to drop dead in a minute. And uh, and Terrell kills himself because that's the only way to, to stop himself from killing Kirk. Uh, and then Chekhov collapses. And by the rules set up in the movie, Chekhov should be dead. But then we just ignore that because Chekhov's a main character. Yeah, that, that, that was the bit that threw me. I, I didn't fully understand that. But. No, there's, it, it's a complete that. There's nothing to understand. It's, it's, just, a, it's just shit. <laughs> yeah, it's just shit. Um, but yeah, I, th I think... I, I'm not sure I 100% agree with Robbie in terms of... Like, I don't think the film did slow to a crawl as much as Robbie maybe, maybe thinks. I do think this bit, this sort of section, it did slow down a lot. Yeah, the regular station wasn't as scary as it needed to be. No. And it just, it just felt like they spent too much time there. Also, um, just to touch on what we're talking about, the regular station. Regular one is just the space station from the motion picture, but upside down. So yeah, it's, that gets at something I wanted to, to, to talk about with this movie, and the... Honestly, the, the, the shot choices and the, and the um, creative choices made are, are very skilled to obscure this. But this is essentially a bottle episode. Like, they brought in a new producer and they said, you know, we just did a Star Trek movie for, you know, close to $100 million and it's, it's a mess. Um, we need to keep this franchise going. We need you to make a movie for $40 million. Uh, and, you know, that maybe sounds like a lot uh it wasn't that much for a for a major special effects movie even at the time uh and so they reuse not only the enterprise model of because of course they do but they reuse the stock footage uh of enterprise and the earth space dock there's stock footage used in the kobayashi maru um nearly all scenes like when you go in and count them because even the kobayashi maru simulator on earth Nearly all scenes are on the Enterprise bridge set. They just shot everybody on the Enterprise, and then they took everyone away, and they redressed it, and they shot everything on the Reliant. Very, you know, very efficient, cost-effective, cheap filmmaking. Uh, and we got one new model out of it that's the Reliant, but, you know, they need a space station. So, sure, turn it upside down. <laughs> 
you know, it's 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 actually it, future model reuses in the franchise will will it, it'll get better and then it'll get a little more blatant. So like you'll see that space station again, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, um, you you touched on there as well, like the one new model being the Reliant. Even that, from what I was reading again, reading up on the research of this, was originally pitched as the Enterprise but upside down. Oh, okay. No, I I think a couple things got confused there. So, first of all, the because and this is more not this is more because it's the way it was in the original series rather than to save money. The idea was that the Reliant was a starship class or Constitution class vessel, uh, and they decided you know pretty early on um, that there's no way we can make that work to the audience because we're having these ships fight it out and there's not going to be any visual distinction. Uh, so someone really for the first time in an official capacity sketches out a different class of Starfleet ship. What they do is, uh, unfortunately, they, they leave off the deflector dish, which is a pet peeve, but they come up, you know, they, they bring the they bring the nacelles in closer to the saucer and create this kind of this kind of schooner thing, uh, and then Harve Bennett, who's the aforementioned producer, walks in, picks up the drawing, and says, "Yeah, that's great, approved." He picked it up upside down, and so and so instead of trying to get his approval again, they just said, "You know, you know, screw it. This looks great." Um, and that actually gave them room to put that sort of uh, memorable torpedo launcher assembly across the top and have the nacelles on the bottom. And and that's how we get the Reliant. Ah, fair enough. It's, 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 it's interesting just how, like, I mean, you touched on it yourself, just how much of, like, of Star Trek in general from the original series right up to, at the very least, this point, and I'm sure it goes on much longer, just how much of it was either botched jobs or reused sets, reused assets. It is very much constantly, um, I can't think of the word, but like constantly building on itself. I would, arg and then, I would argue oh, that, that that is the heart of science fiction, uh, especially of this era, is just goofy things going wrong, seeing what we can do. And and I think there's a lot of heart to that. And, and then I love the design of the Reliant. I didn't know that. Uh, it's a very interesting story. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, okay, and here's a, I'm gonna blow some minds here. Maybe not yours, but I'm gonna blow some minds. It blew my mind when I first when it was first pointed out to me. Uh, but Wrath of Khan violates one of the cardinal rules of action filmmaking, and it does it so well that you don't even think about it. Throughout this film, Kirk and Khan uh, never, never meet. No. I say again, you 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 cribbing from my um, from my trivia here now but yeah no that was something i didn't even pick up on that watching it i really but did i super <laughs> picked up on that well that's because you're a you're a young turk who didn't grow up with this stuff sure 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 <laughs> um and that i think from what i read was in part because of Montalban's uh, commitments on that tv show whose name i've forgotten again yeah, you know, scheduling, budget, like, this is a movie that's defined by restrictions, um, and in some ways is all the more interesting and powerful for it. Um, you know, we don't have time to get into all of it, but I highly, highly, highly recommend Nicholas Meyer's uh, autobiography of these years working on Star Trek. I think it's called just something like My Life with Star Trek, but just search for the author, uh, Nick Meyer. Um, and his experience making this film was just so wild. 
<laughs> and that's all I'm going to say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, should we move on to Act 3? Because we've been talking about this for quite well, a while. Well, I, yeah, I, oh. I realized I, I crossed into Act 3 um, in that final conflict, but what happens is really, you know, on top of everything we've been talking about is really the reason why the movie is so memorable. Um, because Kirk defeats Khan, but in spite, Khan triggers the Genesis device, and because of the battle damage sustained earlier in Act 2, uh, the Enterprise cannot escape, and it's going to be reformatted into the Genesis planet along with everything else in the vicinity. And so Spock, in what he calls his solution to the Kobayashi Maru dilemma, goes into engineering and walks in and gets exposed to a bunch of radiation without a suit. You know, he's going in where the engineers fear to tread and personally fixes the engines. So the Enterprise escapes and everyone's safe except, uh, you know, they're peeling Spock off the floor in the engine room and they call Kirk down there and they exchange their last words. And the movie ends and Spock's dead. Which, I mean, obviously, anyone who's aware of the franchise, and I was aware enough to know that that was what happened, so it's not as much of a shock. But I can't imagine that was, like, what anyone was expecting at the time. It's definitely, I think, you know, Star Trek and Spock almost sort of accidentally, and certainly to Gene's chagrin, but they became so synonymous with each other, and you know, to Shatner's chagrin as well. And that's why, that's why Nimoy had so much pull for the motion picture because he wasn't going to come back at all. That's why they created Decker and Ilea and another Vulcan character. But then when he decided to come back, like he could sort of call, he could do it on his own terms because he was willing to walk away. Um, and that's how he ended up getting the director assignment later on and all this stuff. Um, but he, but he wanted to be done. You know, he came back for motion picture. It was a whole huge stressful thing. He wanted to wrap it up. And so he said, I'm only going to appear in Star Trek two. If you kill me, and, uh, and they're piecing together, like, like pieces of 15 or 20 different scripts. Like, one script had Genesis, one script had Savik. Um, Harv Bennett came in and decided he wanted to do Khan, so they wrote a script with Khan. And then, uh, basically, the week before shooting in a hotel room, uh, Nick Meyer Frankensteins this script together. It's amazing, because the script is really good. Um, but... But his idea is, uh, you know, we're gonna kill, we're gonna kill Spock like like Janet Lee in Psycho, you know that you know Spock is gonna be killed in the opening space battle, and the rest of the movie is let's get the bastards who killed Spock, and he pitches it to Nimoy exactly that way, and he loves it, and someone talks, and uh, probably someone who didn't want Spock to be killed, uh, you know maybe maybe it was even maybe it was even Gene. Uh, it leaked to the fandom that they were going to kill Spock and, and they were going to kill Spock in the first act and, and they laid an egg. They went crazy. And so the damage control meeting occurred and they're like, all right, look, Leonard, we can't kill you like Janet Lee because everyone knows that we're going to kill you like Janet Lee. So we're going to fake kill you. That's the Kobayashi Maru. And then you're going to get the biggest blowout dramatic death of all time. And that's the end of the movie. And so you're, and so imagine being a fan in, you know, 1982, there's no internet, right? There's just rumors. You're sitting in the theater and, you know, Spock's killed, but it's a fake. And you're like, oh, you know, they, you know, people just, uh, just BSing. And then you get to the end. Yeah. 
Yeah, I can see how that, that, that must have been incredibly impactful at the time. Um, so, something that I think... So, this is a really bad segue, I'm sorry. But um, something, something that I came across in my trivia that would have perhaps made it a bit less impactful. Um, when Kirk arrives in engineering and sees uh, Spock basically half dead at this point, he, obviously he, like, he runs forward and Scotty and McCoy hold him back. And in the film, Scotty said, uh, well, Jim says he's going to die and Scotty says he's dead already. Originally, that was meant to be a McCoy line and he was going to say he's dead, Jim. Oh. But, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Dee refused to film it because he said he thought it would get laughs oh, in an otherwise God. very emotional scene. Oh, thank God for you, Dee. <laughs> because that would have been so... It would have taken you immediately out of the moment, I think. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's way too light-hearted. I mean, obviously, it's not a light-hearted line, but with the sort of history behind it. Yeah, it's not, it, you know, it's not anyone's fault, but, like, this stuff becomes memes. Like, you can't just say, be me up Scotty in a, in a film without it having that meta meaning to it. Yeah. And, yeah, you, you, you can't, you can't get, evoke the cliché. Uh, cough, Star Trek Into Darkness, cough. Yeah. Oh, God, don't, let's not start on Into Darkness. I um, I when I watched Into Darkness, I described it as a love letter to the Rathacan written by someone who'd never seen Rathacan. <laughs> now that I've seen Rathacan, I agree with that even more. <laughs> um, I think Spock's death is really well executed. To 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 kind of dive back into the scene, uh, I think the emotional stakes are there. Shatner uh, gives a pretty pretty good performance in the scene, all things considered. Nimoy is obviously incredible. Uh, and it and it really, you know, it's this great resolution, which is then uh, hilarious that, that that we were talking about undercutting the seriousness of moments uh, with uh, Scotty busting out the bagpipes and playing Amazing Grace is the funniest thing. Uh, <laughs> it comes out of nowhere, and and noticeably in their recap at the beginning of, of Star Trek Three, uh, they play that scene again, but for some reason the bagpipes are playing. <laughs> Philistines, the lot of you. <laughs> you know, it is in, it is interesting you say though about about the acting in that scene, and particularly Nemo's acting, and it is brilliant. He does a brilliant job of it. But I don't know if it, I, this might be a hot take, but the way he speaks sounds less like he's dying and more like he's incredibly constipated. Be <laughs> constipated to me. Like it's not enough to ruin the scene, and the rest of the acting and the re- even his own acting is brilliant. But that. It just it pulled me out of it slightly because it felt it it just didn't sound quite right to me. Get off my lawn, kids! <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. But yeah, um, I've got a few bits of trivia on this one again, and then we'll try and wrap up for this episode. Uh, not for this episode, sorry, for this <laughs> film. Even we've got one more film to do. Um, but trivia-wise, um, Walter Koenig refers to this film. Well, has referred to a reportedly still does on occasion as Star Trek 2 Chekhov screams again <laughs> because, because obviously you had the scene in motion picture with him you know, there, being burned there, sorry go on uh, I was going to say there are two candidates on God's Earth for the male Fay Ray one of them is Walter Koenig and the other one is William Shatner <laughs> oh dear um, Shatner actually speaking of Shatner 
originally almost turned down the film because he wasn't comfortable playing Kirk as a middle-aged man. Okay, no, okay, here's a story. This is out of Meyer's book. This is from the horse's mouth. So I told you about the, this hotel room, like, like, incre like solo. I say, I want to say jam session, but it was solo. He just sat in a room and wrote the movie and knowing he would not get credit for it. Uh, but he, you know, he kills himself to deliver this script. If he doesn't deliver this script, if it's not greenlit in two days, this is the stakes. If it's not greenlit in two days, there's no movie. Everybody goes home. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and on day one, you know, all the producers are like, oh, you know, this is great. We love it. You know, you really saved this project. You really saved our asses. We're going to make it. You're going to shoot it. You're going to be famous. And then on, you know, on like the night of day one, the word comes in. William Shatner hates the script. And it, and like, and, and like, that's it. There's no movie that they, they, they have one chance to hash it out, to get everyone in a room Meyer, Harve Bennett, the, you know, at the executives at Paramount who are sweating bullets, you know, Shatner and Shatner's agent. And he's got to figure out, okay, what, what's wrong with the script? What's wrong with the script? And the problem is, I don't know if I have the exact age right, but the problem is that they say that it's Kirk's like 62nd birthday. And Meyer, you know, he, he says, you know, Shatner raised a fair point. He's like, I'm a working actor. I have got, I've got to live after this. And if we shoot this scene, uh, no one is going to hire me to play any younger than 62. And so Meyer realized that the only problem was that line. So he took out that line and then it's, Oh, Shatner loves the script. You know, <laughs> we're shooting, we're going. Yeah. Apparently, apparently he also though, uh, this is probably a lot earlier than this. Uh, but apparently he a few times said, could, like, could, could I not put on a load of makeup and still be a young James Kirk? And, yeah, like, that was... I don't know what he was expecting there because the rest of the cast is still older, but... Well, yeah, and, and, and you can see the issue in, in, you know, some of it being fair and some of it being kind of funny. But also in that meeting, Meyer says, you know, selling... Shatner on okay we won't say your age but we think this is a really beautiful meditation on aging that we're gonna do with you here and it's gonna be good for your career not bad for your career and so he did sell Shatner on that aspect that it can be about his age and then Shatner was like but don't make it an explicit age right okay fair um but yeah the only other bit of trivia I had was um Due to sort of complete coincidence, really, as far as I'm aware, none of the producers have said it was intentional. But because of when Kirk's birthday is being March 22nd, and the year this film is set being 2285, this the events of this film fall exactly on Easter Day. Huh. Which, when you then consider that this film is about a man <laughs> sacrificing himself to save people who then comes back in the next one, is oddly poignant. <laughs> That's hysterical. I love that. That's quite interesting. <laughs> but yeah, so that, that was the uh, Wrath of Khan, and we'll move on to the final film for today's episode. I, I will say, just for the record, that it, that that can't have been intended because it wasn't 2285 yet. The Star Trek timeline essentially does not exist until 
the last episode of season one of Star Trek The Next Generation, in which they say the year is 2364. And all dates in Star Trek are back extrapolated from that one date. Oh, okay. Interesting. Well, because when they when they shot Star Trek, and this is actually part of the pitch, this is in the story bible. Gene Roddenberry wanted the audience to not know exactly when it is. Is it the twenty second century? Is it the twenty seventh century? You know, it did. It doesn't matter. It's the future. Yeah, that's actually that. That's even more surprising at that point then, because while I was doing the research for this, I also sort of it was mentioned on the IMDb page in terms of when Easter Day falls because of the way that years work and exact dates <laughs> March 22nd is the rarest date for Easter Day to occur on of any that it can Ooh. so that's incredibly coincidental it's also my it's ex-girlfriend's also birthday, birthday but that's probably not a coincidence <laughs> <laughs> oh dear you're, you're, I, you, you're attracted to your ex-girlfriend because she shared a birthday with you <laughs> no no I didn't even I didn't know his birthday was March 22nd until just now um, um, I According to IMDb, it is yeah. anyway. But then, but then, one little bit of of timeline craziness. Um, so I said that the the century hadn't even been established. That actually comes from this film because the first thing you see on the screen after the credits is in the twenty third century. But they then effed it up with the lines they gave Khan, where they said that he was active two hundred years ago which was established in in the original series to be the 1990s. So those two facts are irreconcilable, um, but the franchise concluded that uh, it's in the 23rd century, and then they, they hammered a nail in the timeline finally in 1987 in Next Gen. So yeah, I think, I think Wrath of Khan is interesting for... It's a collection of really good scenes throughout the run. Uh, I, I think there, there's a lot of reasons why people love this film. I totally get why people love this film. There are there are such strong moments throughout Spock's death. That scene with with uh, McCoy and Kirk. The uh, scene where Kirk outsmarts Khan uh, with the Genesis device uh, uh, debacle. There's a lot of great moments in this movie, uh, but I just felt throughout it didn't piece them together super well but i can understand why people love this film i'm not super negative on it i think you have hit on a very strong point um and it is one of the reasons why it's not my favorite of the trek films Uh, it has several of my favorite scenes um but you're right the the structure betrays the constraints of making the film um, not just in budget, but in the creative process, in everything. And I'll, I'll note on that on that topic, you know, that the original series actually had a dedicated... They, they contracted with a firm to review all of the science in every episode of the original series. Um, and clearly there's nothing like that going on at this point, because I would say to that date... The Wrath of Khan has, by a wide margin, the worst science in Star Trek. Yeah, I can definitely yeah. see that. It is a bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that was that was the Wrath of Khan. We'll move on to the final film now, Search for Spock. And again, Patrick, if you want to just take us through the first act. Sure. Uh, the first act. Everyone's really sad that Spock's dead. <laughs> um, 
uh, we actually start on the Enterprise, um, and as you pointed out in your live tweet, it still has the same scars. It's uh, they're literally on their way home uh, from uh, from from battling Khan. Uh, they arrive at space dock, which now you know actually looks different. And they're actually shooting uh, new footage. God bless them. Uh, but there's something wrong with McCoy. Uh, McCoy is essentially acting as if he's Spock, which the you know Kirk understandably finds strange and a little distasteful, um, and very out of character for for McCoy. Uh, so McCoy is sent off to uh, the uh, asylum planet. No, uh, he's just sort of. Uh, actually, no. McCoy's just running around until he uh, tries to get to the Genesis planet, which it turns out you can't do, because uh, Genesis has become a political hot potato, uh, because people noticed that it's the most destructive superweapon of all time, and the Federation just kind of made it as a terraforming project uh which is kind of nice to see that uh, aspect of things as kind of uh exposited as incredibly galactically stupid uh so the genesis planet is locked off the only people who are allowed to go back are uh david marcus and savick on the uss grissom uh, the enterprise is going to be decommissioned and its officers are all going to be split up uh, Scott is promoted to captain and given the chief of engineering post on the Excelsior, uh, which I can't describe any better than the pitch given to the model maker. Make the USS Enterprise as if it was designed in Japan. <laughs> that That's the 1980s. They're very enlightened there. Uh, so... The, the McCoy plot is furthered by Sarek... Uh, still played by Mark Leonard, showing up, and he's really pissed at uh, Kirk for some reason, and they finally talk through their sort of cultural mutual misunderstanding, uh, and there was a ritual that Spock was supposed to perform when he knew he was about to die that would have preserved his uh, personality. Essentially, the Vulcans have like created a afterlife of of telepathic uh, impressions uh, and that softens the blow of uh dropping dead now because of a scene that they put into star trek 2 at the last minute because nimoy decided that he was having fun after all and he actually would open the door to coming back as spock they just decided to bullshit something and they had him uh, mind meld with uh with with mccoy and say remember and also they, you know, made it clear, although this might have been in the original, that his body landed on the Genesis planet. So, uh, Sarek and Kirk discover that, uh, you know, that Kirk, uh, that Spock carried out the ritual with McCoy because they're really best friends. Oh, it gets me. It gets me every time. Uh, and so McCoy is going to continue to deteriorate unless they bring him to Vulcan and, and complete that aspect of the ritual. Uh, and Starfleet doesn't want him to. Uh, so actually, no, I, I, I should explain. They're not just going to have McCoy go back to Vulcan to do the ritual. They actually want to recover Spock's body too. And Starfleet says, hell no, you idiot. You know, you're going to make us go to war with the Klingons if you do that. 
but as Kirk says, the word is no, I am therefore going anyway. <laughs> Meanwhile, a, a particular Klingon who looks and sounds suspiciously like Doc Brown uh, has, gone, has gone renegade in an attempt to, to seize the Genesis data so that the Klingon Empire can make their own super weapon. So they throw a lot at us in this first act, and 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 oh, they do. I quite like that in comparison to to the slow pace of the first film and the, in my opinion, weird pace of the second film. This movie immediately hits the ground running, and you're immediately in, and there's a lot of character moments happening, while also taking its time. I, I think this is a really strong first act for this movie, and and sets up a lot of great stuff for later on. And it really even, I would say, more successfully than the motion picture. The motion picture is heavily leaning on our knowledge and affection for these characters, which made sense at the time because Star Trek was big. Everyone wanted it to come back. Uh, and now Star Trek III uh, is a little more confident. It's a victory lap after Star Trek II saved the franchise, which is in no way, shape, or form an exaggeration. Uh and it just hits the ground running with these characters, with these concepts. Sarek is back, the planet Vulcan, the mind meld. And it, it weaves all these elements together into this very confident package. And when I was a child, I actually, I watched the movies before I saw the original series. Um, and I was very willing to just like hit the ground running with this. Like the, the filmic language tells you who these people are and why they're important to us. Certainly. And and also, you know, this film, with those small character moments, uh, and especially it being the third of a of a trilogy, even if, even if you never watched an episode of Star Trek, if you watched these last two movies, you are now, you're now in. You know these characters now. Oh, you're in, yeah. This is a big, this is a big pipeline of Star Trek fans. Absolutely. And I think... Two, two to three, that's the pipeline. Yeah. And, and, and I think this is, uh, I referred to, right at the beginning of this podcast, I referred to these movies as, as uh, the growing pains of the Star Trek films. And I think this is the movie, uh, hilariously enough, that shirks this weird teenage period and becomes this Star Trek film identity that I think would be further strengthened in four, uh, not to get too ahead of ourselves, we'll talk about that in the next episode. Then mm. then six, then five happens, and then six uh, uh, finishes these this this uh, hectilogy. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm I I am right there with you for what it's worth. Yeah, it's a really it is a I love the word confident. It is a very confident movie, and I think so much of that comes from Leonard Nimoy directing. Yeah, it's 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 a it's it's the family. It's a family production. He brings a lot. Yeah, I think that's head. something. Is, sorry, I was gonna say that's something we didn't really touch on as much in the first two films, but something that came up a bit in my research is that a lot of the time with the first two films, particularly with the first one, it wasn't being directed by someone who even necessarily had a huge understanding of Star Trek. It was like um, it, it, according to my research in the first film, he had to sort of rely on the cast a lot of the time to say is this what your character would sound like is this how your character would react having someone who's so familiar with the franchise because at this point it's been what 
to, I, when did Search for Spock come 84. out again? 1984. 1984. 80, 84. So, closing on 20 years at this point. Um, sort of 15 to 20 years. Like he's been familiar with the franchise for that long. You you get that understanding that I think anyone outside the franchise just couldn't match. Well, and I want to say the the wisdom I think for making this happen comes from the the producer of Star Trek's two through five, who I mentioned before, Harv Bennett. Um, he was completely unfamiliar with the franchise. He was a mercenary. Um, he was brought in to make this movie for forty million dollars. He sat down and binged all of Star Trek, and he's the one who said con um and i think he must have had his eyes open because obviously they would have wanted uh nicholas meyer to come back you know nick was an experienced director this was his first like you know effects blowout movie but he he made it profitable um but meyer didn't return to direct and harv must have seen something in the process of the way this cast interacted but he gave that to Nimoy and before this movie Leonard Nimoy was not a Hollywood director after this movie Leonard Nimoy was a Hollywood director it was a gamble that instantly paid off and he brings a lot of interesting ideas with his direction I mean going right from that intro all the playing with aspects ratio is is immediately unique and visually captivating in a way that uh I feel like captured more film elements after Star Trek 2 played it very safely in terms of its uh, how it was made as as a movie. Mm. And yeah, this movie does take a lot of weird risks and and it has a lot of really weird visuals and I, and I think that's awesome. Uh and and that can only come from the the mind of someone who really A knows this franchise and and B was always the 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 weird focus of, of the franchise, that being Spock. <laughs> he, he's got a great mind. I, I've read his book, or one of his books, and he, he's got this, this real ingenuity to him. Uh, and I think letting Nemo direct this film was such a... Oh, what a wonderful choice. Chef kiss. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and he knew probably no one on Earth was better at working with Bill Shatner than Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> and I... But better at putting up with it. <laughs> I think that that actually brings me into something that I that I wanted to talk about uh, in this movie, which is Shatner's performance is awful in this movie. I think he's at his absolute worst in this ever, uh, and I think it is really that like friendship rivalry uh, between him and Nimoy. I, I've been on sets where I'm an actor, uh, and I've been on sets where I knew the director, and sometimes it can be weird to. Uh, manage that friendship, professional relationship, and especially in the case of of Shatner and and Nimoy, where they're friends, coworkers, rivals, all that. I feel like it, it might have given, and maybe you guys can shed some light on this. Uh, Shatner, this this leeway to not try as hard because it, oh, some of the, some of his deliveries in this movie are simply awful. That is so interesting that you point that out. And this could be my like straight up bias as this is one of my earliest experiences with the original crew. Um, but I don't see it. I, I, I like the, the performance. And I think in some ways it was, you know, in, in as much as Shatner could possibly redefine a character that he defined, uh, 
he created kind of the the meme Captain Kirk and the Chris Pine Captain Kirk here um, for putting his crew first above Starfleet and authority. Um, and it's it's easy to miss because it was so long ago, but that's a, an inflection point for the character, sort of like uh, Nimoy had back in the motion picture. And I, I don't know, I, I I think he sells it. I I didn't go back and rewatch, but I I don't I don't remember having any complaints. I think the stuff with Kirk in this film is is really good. Like I think this movie has some of the best Kirk moments ever. However, I, yeah, you're just talking about the acting. Yeah, just yeah, yeah. just the specific line deliveries i feel like when you get to this weird public perception of captain kirk the specific kind of voice that people mimic mm -hmm. is very present in this movie and and i never I, I never got that very much watching through the original series or watching through a lot of these other movies but in this movie he he really does sound like that and mm. it, it is noticeable however what is happening is so interesting that it's easy to excuse yeah, I mean, yeah I honestly, I, maybe I just missed it. <laughs> I think, again, I think I fall in the middle on this one. I think I definitely see that the, the sort of Shatnerisms, as they're sort of referred to, <laughs> um, are definitely the strongest of from what I've seen so far. Obviously, I've still got three movies to go, but they're definitely the strongest so far in this. But I think, like, like Robbie said, it's such a in, sort of engaging film that it doesn't really matter that much i don't think like it, it it's not he's not enough of a focus for long enough in any one scene that it ever really ruins oh, it for great. me yeah that's oh. super not a criticism i just think it's it's notable and i think it's interesting with nimoy in the director's seat to see how that could have possibly affected william shatner's performance but won't know unless you I know talk to him, you know <laughs> uh you, you know I, this this just occurred to me um I wonder if Nimoy was trying to shift, was trying to sort of shift material to to D. Kelly, because what a performance yeah. from McCoy, and there's no there's no Spock there, to 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 dilute that in any way. So you know Kirk kind of being uh, low key sidelined, um, it, you know, and and every cast member gets like one really good scene. Which again, I think, comes from kind of the love and the understanding that Nimoy has of the characters. I get, I guess, except Chekhov. What does Chekhov do? Anyway, the rest yeah, of Chekhov's them. kind of. The rest of them all have, his... The rest of them all have a really great scene, but D. Kelly is a great actor, and the the script gives him several dedicated scenes to show what he's doing. Yeah, and can I say thank goodness that is what these movies needed all along and the, the my principal favorite part of the original series the dynamic between those those main trio and god it was so great to see d kelly back in where he should be hmm. see conversely to me like obviously it is great to see d kelly getting more uh sort of more scenes in this but to me i think what stuck stu try again to me i think what sort of stood out to me the most and sort of elevated this above the first two films is how much like like um patrick was just saying every sort of auxiliary character gets their one scene you've got a threatening the the transporter guy and putting him in a closet you've got sulu being called tiny you've got uh <laughs> james Duhan, uh you've got uh, scotty up your shaft uh, yeah. up your shaft you've, they've all got really i like 
I can't remember really other than uh, the sort of um, scene of Scotty with his nephew slash not nephew whatever there's not a huge amount of memorable scenes for those characters in the first two films Agreed. and this I think is where they really get to shine as characters in their own right rather than as sort of extensions of the main three yeah I mean yeah. I've got a ranter three under my belt about how this this movie is kind of systematically underrated but I think the modern perception of those core seven as being the crew you know as opposed to Rand or Chapel or any of the other sort of randos who came in and out of the original series you know this movie and then the way that it's followed up in the next movie is why we have that you know i cannot imagine the the um the kelvin movies being in any way recognizable without that sort of context of you know these these are the seven who live and die for each other and if starfleet gets in the way then screw starfleet absolutely yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um but yeah, that's we're still on Act One. Yeah. Should we sort of <laughs> yeah. turn it on into Act Two? <laughs> this is okay. Be a long well, episode. you know, with with all the setup being done, you know, the Klingons uh, destroy the Grissom and uh, they take uh, David and Savick captive on the Genesis planet that the uh, device created at the end of the last movie. But not before, uh, first of all, they discover some really gnarly uh, weather and stuff on the planet. Like it's a cool planet, clearly a set in a studio, but it's cool. Um, and they discover a Spock's coffin's empty, and there's a tiny, a, a child alive Spock on the planet. Um, it turns out that there's this kind of Fisher King thing going on where, uh, you know, as the planet ages, so does Spock. And in a matter of days to hours, uh, the planet is going to age and explode for some reason because I guess that's what old planets do. Uh, actually, that that turns out to be because of some ethical shortcuts that David Marcus took in creating the Genesis device, so that's where his little mini arc comes in and he gets to feel guilty. Uh, but of course, the Klingons have no problem with this. That just makes it even better as a weapon. Uh, and so they're, you know, like I said, they destroy the Grissom and it's annoying captain. Uh, they, they run down the three on the planet and they're trying to threaten them to get what they want. Uh, and then the enterprise gets into the system, which they stole from Starfleet, uh, in, uh, one of my favorite sequences of all time. Uh, they stole it from Starfleet. Scott sabotaged the Excelsior so they could get away. Um, Uhura stayed behind to do some sabotage, um, and uh, they modified the Enterprise so that it can run with just the five of them. Kirk, McCoy, Sulu, Scott, and Chekhov. And it, it's done like a heist. Like, they got to break McCoy out because he's in jail for trying to get to the Genesis planet by himself. Um, they've got to uh, undock the uh, Enterprise before it can get decommissioned. They've got to escape the space dock. It's brilliant. Uh, and then they get to the Genesis planet, and they get jumped by Klingons. And uh, the Klingons uh, think that they're screwed because it's the Enterprise, but they're just going to YOLO it because they've got a cloaking device. Um, and uh, Kirk actually outguesses them and fires first. And so the ships essentially end up crippling each other, which is always a really amusing uh, situation to have. 
And uh, I guess that's as good a place for an act break as any. What I think is interesting is that we, prior to the discussion of, of the plot of Act 2, we had gushed and ranted for like 25 minutes about all the things that we loved and worked about this movie, and not a single one of us ever said the word Klingon uh, once. <laughs> oh, I. this was a defining movie for the I, I agree. However... They were, they felt tacked in to the plot about I, getting Spock back. I said the same thing during my live tweet. It feels like they were there because this film needed a mo- uh, needed a villain rather than. No, absolutely, that's true. I don't think that they're a thematic villain. I think they're there to reestablish the kind of uh, the political subtext of Star Trek is something that there's a subset of fans that respond to. Um, the kind of, and in, in most of it's inferred, but this tension between like the Klingons and the Romulans and the Federation as this sort of Cold War tension between great powers. And I think Nimoy was very aware of that. And, and logically he figured if the Federation can, can nuke planets all of a sudden, the people who are going to be the most interested are the Klingons. That, that is very, very true. However, in the context of this movie's Overall plot, and yeah, I, I agree. In the meta narrative, totally, they super work. However, in the context of of the direct, more interesting character dynamics of the main crew, the relationship with Spock, the weird child Spock stuff uh, with Savick, which we'll get into, uh, they are the weakest link in this film, by far. Uh, and and it is a shame as. Christopher Lloyd is God. He's trying his best. He's really he's giving it his oh, all. I was about to say the same thing. You can tell he's really into it. So it, I mean, he's no he's no Kang. He's no Core, but he's maybe at least a Koloth. <laughs> I mean, I am wildly entertained by all the Klingon stuff in this movie. Okay, and and, and that is that is entirely fair. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Genesis. It's a wonderful one. Like you, like you mentioned, even in your plot synopsis, you couldn't help but mention how amazing Genesis is as a locale. There's so many cool sets, and yeah, it is obviously that it's like all on sound stages. But there's so many cool sets. There's so many cool ways that that they decide to shoot the planet, and it feels yeah like this living, weird place uh, that is constantly in flux. Just it's wonderful. I love Genesis. Yeah. The Star Trek movies need that. Like, I think Khan tried to do that, but the only thing, they only had budget for a matte painting and some, some shiny lights. Um, this, I think, does bring a, resurrect a little bit the idea that Star Trek is non-combat-related spectacle, um, like with V'ger. Agreed. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think this, I think the where, the the point you cut off as where you sort of define Act 2 to Act 3 is an interesting one because I think sort of what I would have considered to be Act 3 has its biggest moment, I think, in the next scene that you, uh, sorry, Act 2, sorry, has its biggest moment in the next scene which you've sort of just shifted over to Act 3 slightly. Yeah. I think without that scene, Act 2 is perfectly serviceable but I, I, it doesn't feel like there's as much to talk about obviously you've got the very f- beginning of it with them 
sort of hijacking the Enterprise and stealing the Enterprise. And then the rest of the Act 2 just sort of happens up until that scene that we'll talk about in a moment, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we can talk about it now. I, I kind of just ran out of breath. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> That's fair. But I, I pres- after after the standoff with uh, with the Klingons, uh, I, I didn't want to talk about it because so much happens in such a short time. Uh, you know, Krug gets back on top, both because he does a decent job of reading Kirk um, and because he has the hostages on the planet below. Um, and, you know, he, he tells, you know, he tells his men, kill one of the prisoners. I don't care which. And right now Kirk knows that the prisoners are Spock. He knows that Spock is now alive in some form on the planet. Cause Savick told him his son, David and Savick, I guess he cares about a little bit. That would still be bad. Um, and you're, you're kind of in his head. Like it's, it's, it's like like listening to something horrible happen on the phone and you're too far away. Um, so the, the, the guy actually goes to kill Savick, but David tackles him and is, you know, because he's an unarmed scientist human against an armed warrior Klingon, he is killed. And that's where we get the, the, one of the emotional set pieces of the movie where Savick has to get back on the phone and say, Admiral, David is dead. And then, you know, Shatner and Nimoy worked out this, this little, this little blocking move. Um, I think they, they established it in ad-libbing, but then they went back and shot it purposefully, if, if I understand the story, where he backs up into his captain's chair to sit down, like, shocked, but he misses it, you know, and Klingon yeah. bastards, you killed my son. Which I think is, I mean, we mentioned sort of Shatner's acting being potentially less than brilliant in this film. I think that one scene is, in my eyes at least, a brilliantly acted Completely scene. Completely agree. My, my, my heart has like a phantom pain just sitting here describing it to you. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Ridiculous. It is. It's, it's an inc- just the way that the sort of emotion the, and just how like heavy this is 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 portrayed brilliantly you know and and shatner sneaks up on you because he's such a powerhouse talent he just doesn't bother to to use it most of the time i totally agree i'm so glad you said that (laughs) okay david's dead and and kirk decides we're we're gonna get the bastards who killed david you you, do you want me to go on and talk about what happens next um yeah i mean the next bit is possibly my favorite scene in the film, so I think it's definitely important to talk about that. There are oh god, it's like I want to say that too, but then I have like 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 thirty favorite scenes in this it's film. The crew heist. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's wonderful for me. It's so yeah, it's so good. But um, and almost like you said about Khan, it's it's somehow like a little bit less than the sum of its parts, which I think is one reason why it has this sort of negative reputation. Like people sort of go back and say, was this all just to like bring Spock back from the dead? But but I don't think that's being that's being fair. Uh, but anyway, uh, so they blow up the Enterprise, and like this was the Enterprise. There was only ever one Enterprise in 1984. Um, but they decided that's the price that had to be paid for for bringing Spock back. Was you know so you killed David? Okay, we've known him for one movie. 
but they destroy the Enterprise. Like, aside from Spock, that's the only character we've been with for the entire time since the cage. Uh, so they work out that because the Bird of Prey is super stripped down, they don't have much of a crew. Um, and so whoever's left on the ship basically is going to beam over to storm the Enterprise, and they don't know that the Enterprise is automated right now. So they beam down to the planet as the, they surrender to the Klingons. They beam down to the planet just as the Klingons beam up to the Enterprise, and Kirk has set the self-destruct and destroys the ship and almost all of the Klingons. Which does, does lead to possibly, as much as I said this is my favourite scene in the film, also possibly one of the stupidest moments in the <laughs> film. Because um, the Klingon hearing the computer very obviously counting down and having absolutely no idea what that means is not the brightest spark. I don't think. <laughs> Just, I mean, uh, we, don't, we don't know for a fact that that guy even speaks English. They used a sort of a translation convention a couple times on the on the bird that, of prey. That's fair. But but yeah, I mean, I just like I said, this that scene is possibly one of my favorites, and it is like it's something that we've seen done in a similar way before in the original series. But the weight of especially losing the Enterprise to Kirk because yes. we've got like I say three series plus the animated series plus two films now at this point of Kirk very consistently being incredibly attached to this thing to the point that it's often sort of mentioned in the original series that it's the one thing that he's like the one thing yeah, that he cares yeah. about more than anything or anyone so, so the, to see the him sort of sacrifice that yeah, the yeah, movement the for Kirk in this movie is he goes from uh, lawful enterprise alignment to chaotic Spock. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's very accurate. Nobody ever made him choose before, and and that's why I think even though people like people say they don't like this movie, but it is unmistakable how every iteration of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy afterward is is informed by this dynamic that any two will sacrifice anything and anyone for the third yeah absolutely um but yeah we'll we'll try and sort of wrap up a bit because we've run on for quite a while at this point so um do you want to take yeah not much not much else happens you know they they have a dramatic uh fist fight to the death with the klingon commander just as the genesis planet's blowing up uh they hijack the bird of prey which is awesome uh and they beam back spock's uh soulless body just as he starts looking like leonard nimoy again again. Uh, which is convenient uh, and they fly to Vulcan, and then, you know, because of the specific combination of Genesis, Mojo, and uh, McCoy housing the Katra, they resurrect Spock. And that's where the movie ends. They're all on Vulcan, they're all reunited, even with Uhura, and it just ends, and the adventure continues. And noticeably, Spock does have amnesia. And that comes yeah, back. Yeah, he's, he's traumatized, yeah which I think was, was essential. Uh, you know, even with, you know, your what's the cost, your ship, your son. Um, I, I think it, even, even with um, the, the issues he has in Star Trek Four, I do think it feels a little weightless, but, but they try. Mm-hmm. See, I think, I think the one thing, and obviously I've not seen Star Trek Four yet, so I can't sort of compare in that way. But 
the one thing that really sold me on Spock's trauma in this was the the scene where when he's approaches Jim and he repeats his last few lines from Wrath of Khan. And that to me like and to be honest, it's a testament to how sort of how relatively well written these films are that I remembered that those were those lines from Wrath of Khan because I have an awful memory. <laughs> but um but it really sort of it felt right. It felt like that was how someone who had gone through all that would sort of start to piece things back together. Now, I love science fiction because, like, it, cause, like it, it has these... Uh, it aspires to be all scientific, but then you have a moment like this, and it's not a bad thing. They have a moment like this, and that tells you, oh, it's Spock's soul. Yeah. 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 Um, there, is, there is one thing that I... Well, it's not even a complaint about the film, but it's a th- something that annoys me quite a bit, and annoyed me quite a bit when I was doing my research for this. Because that scene where they resurrect Spock is often cited as a continuity error in this film Be- and I found it on quite a lot of sites when doing the research because the re- the what they say is a continuity error is that obviously at the beginning of the film when Sarek is talking to Kirk he describes this process of sort of transferring the Kartra as a common sort of ritual and then at the end when Sarek requests the sort of Kartra to be put back into the into this Spock's body the Vulcan priestess woman says that it's not been, I think it's something along the lines of not been done since the years of old or something like that. And the amount of sites that I saw referring to that as a continuity error because of like the difference between it being a common thing versus a um, not been done for years, th- they're not the same yeah, thing. Yeah, not at all. That is such yeah, a strange... Not they're not talking about the same thing. No, people, people would rather be mad online about movies than actually watch movies. <laughs> True. Like she's like, the mind meld thing and the catra is not the same as restoring it to a body. Mm-hmm. I think I don't understand how so many people manage to miss that. But that's that's just my rant about Star Trek fans. <laughs> Speaking of, uh, of strange things in this film, uh, I feel like we'd be remiss to not mention the really strange Ponfar scene with the very young Spock. And the very adult Savick. That is a that is a strange scene. I I will I will guess that once again this is Nimoy not being self-serving because he's not even in the scene, right? I think this is Nimoy saying the fans are gonna ask about Pon Far. Um, because that it became, you know, again, this is so much of these movies are responses to what the fandom became. And, you know, it only got mentioned in a couple of original series episodes, but in some of the most iconic ones. And this whole this whole sort of fan, you know, I don't want to say mythology because technically it's canon, but this fan conception of the importance of Pon Far and, you know, that you'll drop dead if you don't get laid every seven years. Uh and I think that's, again, him saying, I take this universe seriously. I'm not afraid of sex. I'm not afraid to, you know, introduce this adult concept in order to sell the idea that this is really physically a growing Spock. Yeah. Like, I don't, it's, it's not salacious or titillating at all. It could have been filmed that way, but it's not. It's essentially an intellectual exercise, which is which is appropriate for yeah, Vulcans. It feels very medical. 
honestly. Yes. yes. Although something that again, I'll I'll preface this by saying again, all of my trivia comes from IMDb, and I don't know how true any of it is. But supposedly, in at least one draft of the script, or in the mind of one of the producers, or something, uh, that scene was supposed to end with Savic getting pregnant. <laughs> No, okay, that was actually something that was cut from Star Trek Four, uh, because because someone was worried it would be controversial, uh, which it would. So <laughs> when would. when you get there, this 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 isn't a spoiler because it happens in like the first ten minutes. But Savick, uh, again played by Robin Curtis, we didn't talk about the recasting actually, which is kind of interesting, probably because unfortunately. And I, I don't mean to in, insult Robin Curtis standing in for Kirstie Alley as Savick, um, but something's lost yeah. there. Um, and and a character that I think bigger things were supposed to happen with wound up kind of falling by the wayside. But Robin Curtis does reprise the role briefly at the beginning of Star Trek IV, um, but she stays behind on Vulcan. She doesn't journey with the crew. And on screen, there's no explanation for that. What it was supposed to be and what, um, you know, kind of the official novels took up is that she's pregnant with Spock's child. And I think because when you, when you get to Star Trek 4, you're going to see where it is kind of in terms of, of uh, a fa- it is a family-friendly comedy in addition to being Star Trek. And I can very easily see why that was, that element was designed to just be dropped. It does lead to an awkward conversation where somehow they're talking about Savick staying behind but not saying why. Right. But, you know, it is what it is. Wow, yeah. And I think it was probably for the best that that was cut, given the controversy already existing around the Pomfar scene. Um, yeah, it's it, it's there for the fans. Like, if you want to pick up that story point, fine. But it's not the general audience doesn't have to sort of uh, deal with it. Yeah. Um, I've got a few bits of trivia for this one. I've not got as much as for the other two. Um, mainly just because none of it was nearly as interesting, to be honest. Um, the opening credits for this, which I, something I actually picked up on while watching it, and I didn't live tweet it, and I should have. Um, but the opening credits where you see William Shatner and DeForest Kelly and all that they leave a gap in time between (laughs) Shatner and Kelly's credits because that's where Nimoy's name would have been which I think is quite sweet yeah Yeah. cute um during the filming of this and this isn't an event I'd heard of but apparently it's a well-known thing uh what was referred to on multiple websites as the Great Paramount Fire um which I can only assume was a fire at Paramount (laughs) the Great One Um, A great one, yeah. Apparently that happened during the filming, and uh, Shatner is actually credited as having saved one of the crew members from it. I have so, heard wow. that. That's fair play. I'm really scraping the barrel <laughs> with this trivia for this one. Um, actually, that, that one funny well, story. I, that I, if, if I can uh, just, I don't know if this counts as trivia, but the, the studio models for this film, and we pointed out that we got one new model for, for Wrath of Khan from ILM, Wrath of Khan was so successful, I guess ILM had a little bit more money, or someone was just having more fun, I don't know. But the Space Dock Station, the Excelsior, the USS Grissom, the science vessel, and especially the Bird of Prey are going to be absolute stalwarts of the franchise yeah. going forward. So, that, so, it, so 
I would say that the motion picture and the search for Spock are the greatest influences on the overall franchise aesthetic, period. I can definitely see that. Um, But yeah, it, one of the bit of trivia, which, well, two, but one of them's more of a personal thing. Um, But Christopher Lloyd, while shooting this, apparently, despite having it explained to him repeatedly, just could not get get to grips with the concept of communicators and whenever he was filming a scene where he had to speak into a communicator they had to film it multiple times because he just kept shouting at the sky okay Which... so now i'm wondering if he ever learned how to use a smartphone i was thinking the same thing <laughs> <laughs> um and the only other bit of trivia i had which again this is more a personal thing and robbie might understand why but um do either of you happen to know who the head of paramount was at the no. time Oh, wasn't it Michael Eisner? It oh. was Michael Eisner, yeah, yeah. Which we talk about, we talk about um, studio interference. I think a lot of a lot of that makes a lot more sense knowing <laughs> who it was behind it. Because <laughs> um, I, I have quite an interest in in sort of the history of Disney and particularly Michael Eisner's reign, and that that surprised me having read that. <laughs> yeah, I remember I remember the first time I read that and kind of raising my eyebrows because he was he was famous at the time for being the Disney studio head and he wasn't famous at, at that time. Um, yeah. A couple other things that I'm, I'm kind of surprised uh, didn't come up. One is my, my mother's favorite piece of trivia, um, which, uh, so the one Klingon survivor at the end of this film uh, about which much fanfic has been written and actually has a delightful exchange with, uh, with William Shatner uh, but he's played by John Larroquette. And uh, I probably not a lot of uh, millennials and Zoomers are that familiar with him, but he was uh, very famous for being on a show called Night Court. And my mom was just like happened to be in the room watching this with me one day because when I was a kid, I watched this movie like a hundred times. And she was like, John Larroquette's in this movie? So that's that was like on on the level with the surprise of Christopher Lloyd playing a Klingon was uh, was John Larroquette. And then I just wanted to touch on because I did an epic uh, tweet thread about it. The creation of the Klingon language itself uh, was done for this movie. Um, and the the consultant they hired went so above and beyond that there's now literally a Klingon industry um, and it's it all comes from what was built for Star Trek Three. It's on Duolingo, I think, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes, it dude. is. Yeah. Because I keep starting it and then not actually. Yet. <laughs> uh, oh um, man, it it does it. Are the threats any different? <laughs> like you haven't practiced your Klingon today, you honorless patak. <laughs> oh god, that that would be quite funny. That 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 hour will haunt my dreams for the rest of my life. Um. <laughs> But yeah, that was um, that was the search for Spock. If neither of you have anything else to add, um, only maybe a suggestion. Can we maybe split this into three episodes? <laughs> there was a lot to talk about. Yeah, there was. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's gonna be like a two-hour-long episode. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, but we'll wrap up as we as we tend to do, and it's a bit more difficult with this, I think, than with the episodes that we normally do. But we'll go around favorite and least favorite. So we'll start with uh, Robbie. Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. Easy. I I had a feeling that would be the case. Uh, Patrick. The best one is Khan. My favorite one is Spock. 
And unfortunately, unfortunately, that leaves the motion picture out in the wind. It, it, it was trying. Yeah, I think I have to agree. I like Search for Spock is definitely my favorite. And again, I have to agree. Motion picture is probably my least favorite. Yeah. But none of them are bad. I don't think. No. This no. isn't like when we watch a batch of episodes and we have an alternative factor in the middle or something. No, 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 no. And like honestly, it's so Khan probably. I've got pet peeves with that movie that could fill a notebook. Like, so many little things I dislike about Khan, but the package comes together so well, and it's it's so literate. Um, and that's that's Nick Meyer right there. That's his style. Um, and, it, and it saved the franchise. Yeah, I'm coming out of this podcast with a newfound respect for The Wrath of Khan. I still don't love it as a film, but I respect it so much as... As a production, as a production. Mm. That's very fair. Um, did you have a? Did you have a least Probably favorite, Robbie? Can, or... yeah. <laughs> Probably can't. Yeah. Probably can't. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was. I've forgotten what episode number we're up to now. Um, five, six, five, something like that. I wanted to say of... six. It's my Might first. Be six. It's my first. <laughs> yeah, but not last because you're yeah, back with us next I'm week. So excited. I, I agreed to do this um, all, all because I, I want to talk about uh, about uh, Star Trek Four. Yeah, because I remember because I I made the decision to split this split the films into two, and then I approached you to be on them, and you immediately went, "I want to talk about three and four. <laughs> okay, <laughs> fine, you can be on both. HMS um, Bounty. But yeah, uh, Robbie, do you want to plug any anything before we yes. Ca- before we so uh, I'm an actor. I've just finished a indie film project. The Indiegogo is still active. Uh, so if you want to support independent film, I'm in a film called Rent Boy. Uh, right now we're in the short film phase. We have just finished filming, and we're looking for money to now put on our feature. Uh, and so Rent Boy is the story of cycles of abuse from uh, one very corrupted uh business owner uh who takes advantage of a lot of young men in the 1980s to the middleman uh who is his right hand who was groomed by him from a very young age and is now growing old and is tasked to find new fresh meat and the last thing that he expects is to fall in love with the one he is now grooming it is a very complex and emotionally gripping story and I cannot wait till the short film comes out, and I can't wait for the feature. So, check us check us out on Instagram at Rent Boy Short Film, and on Indiegogo especially at Indiegogo.com/projects/rent-boy. And I'll make sure the links for those are in the uh, description for this as well. And any promotional material that you get, if you forward it onto me, I'll uh, push it out Thank on you. the account with the podcast. Um, but until then, and until next week. Uh, this has been the Never Seen Trek podcast. I've been Sam. I've been Patrick. In years forty two on Twitter. I've been Robert. Robert Morvey on Twitter. Robert Morvey on Twitter. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>